Greetings, emergency departments across British Columbia. Sign your charts. You've reached your end of shift. You're listening to End of Shift, the podcast brought to you by the BC Emergency Medicine Network. I'm Eric Angus, along with my friend and colleague, Joe Hager, bringing you an eclectic mix of clinical pearls and discussions about the philosophy and practice of our craft and yours, emergency medicine. This is episode number 12 of End of Shift, Medicine on a Long Line, Delivering Emergency Care in the Wilderness. We'll be talking to Carolyn Kelly-Smith, an emergency physician at the Royal Columbian and Eagle Ridge Hospitals in the Fraser Health Authority. She has several other medical interests she can tell us about as well. I think I first met Carolyn when she was a medical student. She was rotating through the Squamish Hospital ED some years ago. Joe, when did when did you first come across Carolyn? Same thing. She was a medical student. One of the best, I might say. And we worked together last night. Uh, we both had the late evening shift. And I don't know about you, Carolyn, but I got slammed. It was one of the busiest shifts I've had in a long time. I guess it wasn't busy for Carolyn. She's just saying, no, it wasn't busy. It was just business as usual. Are you sure you just weren't being slow, Joe? Yeah, Joe's pretty slow. He's known for that in our department. Yeah, no, I was being slow. I think the CKS is just afraid to talk into the mic, but now we've broken the ice and she's actually said a few words. So now we can move on. Go ahead, Eric. All right. Well, we're going to talk about wilderness medicine, what that means, how it compares to departmental emergency department work, and also how to get involved. So without further ado, here is Carolyn Kelly-Smith. And Carolyn, you should jump in and tell us in glowing terms a little bit about yourself, stuff I haven't talked about. Take it away. So as Eric mentioned, I am a full-time emerge physician at the Royal Columbia and Eagle Ridge Hospitals. I also provide some TTL coverage there. But as far as wilderness and mountain medicine goes, well, I grew up in Squamish. So that's probably where the roots of the wilderness mountain medicine um, seed got sown. I used to skip high school and go rock climbing instead of going to class. So from a pretty early age, I was into playing outside. Um, Did my med school and residency at UBC, mostly because I did not want to leave the West Coast and the mountain around here and the skiing in Whistler. So I didn't go anywhere else. Um, I also watched a lot of ER growing up. So that's probably why I ended up being an eMERGE doc. But uh, in uh, med school, I started doing some official wilderness medicine. I did a one month elective in my fourth year and went down to the Canyonlands in Utah and got involved with the Wilderness Medical Society. Through this elective, just kind of figuring out what they had to offer, really just went camping for a month and they didn't resupply our food adequately. And so learned what running out of food on a long hiking trip is like and was somewhat unimpressed by the simulations and medical cases we had to do on the last night in the middle of the night after they hadn't fed us. But it was overall pretty fun. Um, After that, I did my FRCP emerge residency and in my fourth year decided to do subspecialty training in wilderness and mountain medicine. Um, there was no real program for that at this point, or at that point, uh, and now there still really isn't in Canada, so I kind of made it up as I went along, but I put together a year of a variety of experiences, traveling to Europe to do the International Congress of Alpine Rescue Diploma in Mountain Medicine there, mostly in the UK, but with part of it done in Switzerland. I joined Search and Rescue for the first time during that year as well as a member in training, and I joined Ski Patrol and Whistler Blackcomb as a resident and did some other electives and conferences, including going to Telluride for a month to learn a little bit about altitude medicine because their resort sits at 9,000 feet. Now I work full-time as an eMERGE doc, but I'm still I'm actively involved in the wilderness medicine field. Um, none of it really pays me any money. It certainly doesn't make me rich, but it's a lot of fun. I help predominantly help run the Canadian diploma in mountain medicine here in Canada. So I did a European version when I was a resident. And then uh, having done that, 
with some colleagues brought a program over to Canada and we've developed a Canadian based mountain medicine programs for physicians and advanced life support paramedics that are interested in getting into the field of wilderness and mountain medicine and getting some formal training. I still ski patrol in Whistler Blackcomb every year. I do some work for Mike Wigley's heli skiing during the year. I volunteer for lots of local ultra races, providing medical coverage. In the last number of years, I've managed to travel to Nepal to do some volunteer work for the Himalaya Rescue Association and to Tanzania to uh, be involved with the start of a search and rescue company there called Kilisar for a period of time. But my main wilderness medicine kind of activity or endeavor these days is with North Shore Search and Rescue um, with their advanced medical provider program here in North Vancouver. So I actually think I hate you, CKS, because your life is so awesome. I have this deep-seated envy. But I, maybe what I should do is put a plug in for this uh, Diploma of Mountain Medicine program, which I think you have really done a great job spearheading. Uh, both Eric and I have taken that. I think we were in your first uh, your first version um, of it. Um, it was uh, two sets. One was a winter set and one was a summer set. And it was fantastic. So if there's any eMERGE docs out there that have a kind of a, a bend towards uh, wilderness medicine, this Diploma in Mountain Medicine, which CKS organizes, is great. And now that COVID's kind of uh, waning, I think that would be an awesome thing to do. Yeah, Joe, you and Eric were some of my first students. Yeah, and that's when my sleeping bag fell into the um, crevasse, and I had to bundle myself up in my backpack, and I was very cold uh, during that uh, camping outside. You're currently doing a lot of work for the North Shore, North Shore Search and Rescue. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, what are the boundaries of the North Shore Search and Rescue? Um, how busy is the service? Uh, that kind of thing? Yeah, for sure. So I might get this slightly wrong, uh, but... North Shore Rescue covers the area from the south end of the House Sound Crest Trail um, up to Indian Arm is our primary area of responsibility for search and rescue calls. We're the busiest search and rescue group in the province, which is not surprising just with the proximity of the lower mainland and the amount of people recreating in the North Shore Mountains. I think last year we had around 150 rescue calls. And that was a record year for us. And already we're up to 80 and it's only the beginning of June and summer and September are usually our busiest months. So we're definitely well on track to beat that this year. NSR started in 1965 and calls are continuing to go up and they have about 40 plus volunteers, I think. And it is, it's a volunteer community-based search and rescue team and they're available 24 hours a day all throughout the year. It's, it's an amazing resource. And we'll talk later about how physicians and paramedics are involved with the team as well. What I'm curious about is why, Carolyn, you think mountain medicine is, is important. There may be some people that say, listen, I'm in a family practice or I'm in an emergency room and I'm seeing people with heart attacks, et cetera. But why is mountain medicine important? So I think there's kind of a variety of ways to think about that. The simplest thing is more and more people are venturing into the mountains to recreate. And even if you're as prepared as possible and have all the right equipment, you know, stuff happens out there and people will require rescue and they will have injuries that require medical care or medical problems. So there's definitely a need for medical care in the mountain or wilderness environment. And that's, as we see with our North Shore rescue calls going up every year, that's been accelerating over the last few years, especially in Canada, as more and more people get out there. We're also seeing athletes really pushing the boundaries on expeditions and climbing and you know, with that comes risk of injury, obviously. So we need some medical coverage for that kind of endeavor as well. But I also think it's really important for us to get people out there and grow the appreciation of the wilderness environment. 
because with the appreciation comes the desire to protect it. And so we want these people out there recreating. And so we want to give them a bit of a safety net should things happen, even if they are well prepared. That's why I think we should promote people being out in the wilderness recreating, even though they do invariably injure themselves and require rescue and medical care from those of us that provide it. As far as why it's important to medicine um, and why it's an individual type of specialty and we should think about it in that way. Well, just because you're a doctor, even if you're the best trauma doctor or emerge doc out there in Canada, that doesn't mean you can automatically translate those skills into a wilderness environment. We're all mostly used to working in an emergency department with a variety of resources, including the ability to monitor our patients and assess them, you know, diagnostic tests available. We usually have a lot of support staff, nurses to start our IVs. We may have a respiratory therapist for airway issues. And as soon as you take yourself out of your familiar environment and put yourself in the wilderness environment, you also have often have none of those. So you may need to do your clinical assessment without a stethoscope and without a blood pressure cuff and without any of those things you're used to to help you decide is this person sick or not sick. And then if they need interventions, you will often be doing all of those yourself. You will have to drop your own medications. You'll have to start your own IV. If you do have to do any airway intervention, you're going to be doing prepping all your equipment and doing everything yourself. And so it really changes the practice of medicine. And it's really important for us because of that and not having our usual resources to think before we act in the wilderness environment and decide how much we really should be doing out there and how much is going to benefit a patient versus harm a patient. And so it becomes a subspecialty all in itself because of that. You also have no diagnostic tests. So you're going to have to go completely on your clinical assessment, clinical skills, and just basic experience to decide, are these people sick or not? And that doesn't even get into the environmental risks out there. So, you know, if you fall and break your leg on the street and the paramedics pick you up and take you to an emergency department, like, well, you're going to be out for six weeks or so, and it's going to kind of suck because you can't ride your bike or run your marathon. But if you do that in the winter skiing and there's a storm coming in, all of a sudden the priorities are different because it can become a life-threatening injury because if you don't have the right equipment and with you to shelter or get help, all of a sudden your broken leg and your inability to move puts you at risk of hypothermia. And so priorities in the wilderness environment for medical care are often quite different. They may be just, how are we going to get this person out of here safely and quickly? Or it may be just, how are we going to keep this person from getting hypothermia while we wait for help? Because that becomes your priority, not the actual medicine. So I, I think I'm hearing you say that um, wilderness medicine is um, very much an austere environment, um, and you got to rely much more clinically on your assessment skills, and your your treatment options are definitely limited, and your support is definitely limited, and I think I'm hearing you say it also comes at a significant risk not only to the patient but to to you and the other uh, SAR, the SAR providers, you mentioned um, hypothermia and cold in the winter. And there's also dark, um, winter dark comes early. So all these are, I guess, are huge factors on, on how you actually search and how you, um, and how you do the rescue. And I'm guessing sometimes you must even have to spend the night um, with patients. What you're getting at, Joe, is it can be dangerous, but it shouldn't be, especially not if you're doing it in a professional capacity or with an organized rescue group, be that ski patrol or search and rescue. It's kind of like when you go to a code as an emergency doctor and they say the first thing you should do is take your own pulse and calm down. Well, in the search and rescue environment or ski patrol or any sort of organized rescue, the first thing you need to do is realize it's not your emergency and you need to make sure it doesn't become your emergency. And sometimes that means delaying your response and taking it slow and having a significant delay to being able to access the patient 
Sometimes it means you maybe don't go in at night because it's dark and there's an avalanche risk that you can't assess and things have to wait till morning. And we've certainly had calls with North Shore Rescue like that where where the subjects were was too dangerous and we were not willing to go into their location at that time until we could mitigate that risk. And so I think it's important that to realize that you're not trying to be a hero um, and being a hero isn't going to help anyone if you get yourself injured or killed or become another person needing rescue. Uh, and that you need to approach these things calmly and slowly and with thought um, to prevent that. Can you um, give us an idea of some of the calls? Um, just like a um, kind of a grab bag of interesting calls or calls that you might get, like say in the winter, and then again, a list of some of the calls you might get in the summer. Because I'm guessing that some of them are traumatic, but I think some of the search and rescue calls are not traumatic as well. Yeah, over the last number of years, our number of medical calls has significantly increased. And Again, apologies if I get this wrong, but I think about 40% of our calls now are deemed medical in some way. Um, this is actually quite variable. Like it can vary between the things people think about when they think about calls like that with falls and trauma from falls, you know, lots of lower extremity fractures as any hiker runner knows that that's kind of your biggest risk. Some mountain bike stuff. Um, so you get the falls and trauma. We also get a fair amount of medical calls just by the sheer numbers of people now recreating in the backcountry environment. We've had ST elevation MIs. We had a recent unstable SVT that had to be treated in the field. Um, we've certainly had tra traumas, everything from, you know, really just scrapes and bruises to full multi-traumas in shock that required management in the field. And then we also get um, mental health stuff. You know, it's not uncommon for us to get calls about patients that are suicidal. And when we're looking for them, we are unsure if they have actually made an attempt and what kind of attempt that would be and what their medical needs might be. So it's kind of a big grab bag of for the medical calls. In the winter, obviously, we you have to add in hypothermia there and people get lost or mildly injured and unable to make their way out. And then hypothermia becomes a major factor or in the rescue just by virtue of them being stuck out longer than planned with maybe not the right equipment. And then um, obviously in winter as well, the avalanche calls come into play. And in the last number of years, we've had some significant ones, um, including fatalities and major trauma from avalanches on the local mountains. Yeah, it's, it, I didn't realize there was such a high percentage of medical calls out there. I think you even told me one about one. You looked after a uh, STEMI, right, one time? And if I remember correctly, you actually, didn't you guys helicopter that patient right out of there directly to a hospital? Uh, not quite directly to the hospital, but I had a, I did take a, care of a STEMI patient on the BCMC and it was actually like kudos to the fire department there that they recognized that this guy was actually pretty sick and they shouldn't spend the time packing him out by a stretcher carry off the BCMC because he was about three quarters of the way up. And so they asked North Shore Rescue to go in and assist with the evacuation and evaluation and management of the patient. And so I was taken in on the long line and it became immediately apparent that this guy was having a big MI. He was gray and he was sweaty and he just looked the part. Um, so. He, we, we did some basic treatment. He got some nitro and some aspirin, but our biggest priority was like, let's get him right out of here as fast as possible. Uh, so we pulled him out with the long line and the ALS paramedic car met us at Cleveland Dam, which is one of our landing zones, where they did a 12 lead ECG, identified as ST elevation MI, and he went off to St. Paul's. Awesome. Great job. Do you think, or maybe I should put it this way, what skills do you think eMERGE physicians have that suit them best or suit them well for outdoor emergency medicine? Well, I might be biased, but I think emergency docs are the perfect physicians for the job. Uh, we can do a little bit of everything, right? Because a lot of wilderness and mountain medicine is I got something in my eye, I have a blister on my foot, I cut myself, and do I need stitches or can I keep going on my hike or whatever adventure I am on? Uh, so 
we're, you know, we can deal with all of those minor things that come up easily because it's something we do on our day-to-day life at work every day anyways. We're also good at treating all different patient populations, you know, like we can see pediatrics or old people or young people. Um, So that makes us just adaptable for the environment and able to kind of take care of anything that gets thrown at us. As well, we have the procedural skills needed because for the really sick patients, you know, sometimes there is an indication for a life-saving procedure and emerge docs tend to be the ones that have developed those skills over years of training in the hospital in a more controlled environment as well as the minor procedures like how to deal with your nosebleed or get your foreign body out of your eye. So I think we're really unique in that we, with our ability to do a little bit of everything and having the ability to do the hands-on procedural medicine, we're really well suited for the job. The other things that uh, I think makes emergency medicine physicians well suited for it is that we're used to training to do something that we may never do, if that makes sense. So while I certainly hope to never do a cricothyroidotomy in a wilderness environment, I'm used to training to simulate something and and think my way through a procedure that I may never do in my career. And then if I'm faced with that situation where I have to do it, I'm comfortable trying it, even though I haven't had years and years of multiple practice goes at it. So the, you know, the the once every couple of year thoracotomy or cricothyroidotomy that we might train to do in emergency. Um, some of those procedures that we might do once in a career, similar to doing things maybe once in a career in a wilderness environment, like the intubation on the side of the, the ski hill or something, something you're not going to do very often. We're, we're adept at training ourselves to mentally be prepared for those situations and be able to put our skills to use, even though we haven't had lots of practice at it. And then the final thing I would say makes emergency physicians well-suited for the job is that our biggest part of our job is determining sick and not sick. So every patient that comes through our emergency department, our first thing we do is determine, is this person sick or are they not sick? As in, do they need an intervention to save their life now or can they wait? And when you take that skill into a pre-hospital wilderness environment with limited resources that's austere, it becomes super important because if they're not sick, all of a sudden you have a lot of time. You can make sure that your evacuation plan is as safe as possible. Maybe you can get the patient to help you by assisting you with the evacuation by even walking. And if the patient's sick, then the priority becomes getting them out of that wilderness environment as quickly as possible. And are there any interventions that we can do while we make that extrication plan that might actually save this person's life. And so I think as an emergency physicians, we're just on a day-to-day basis, we are identifying patients that are either sick or not. Um, It becomes very valuable in a wilderness environment without diagnostic tools and lots of time to monitor and having to make a quick assessment and decide priorities um, for evacuation and treatment. I want to talk about how much actual medicine happens on, for instance, a search and rescue call. You and I have been on several calls and I have my own thoughts about it, but I think sometimes people are unaware of how much is actually going on that really doesn't involve you for a lot of the time. Can you comment on that? Yeah. So I would say very little medicine goes on on search and rescue calls. Like I mentioned, I think one of the most important things we do is determine is the patient sick or not sick. And sometimes if we decide they're not sick, our job is kind of done and we say, let's just get them out of here. Um, And if they are sick, the priority is still let's get them out of here. It just maybe there's a few interventions that happen during that uh, extraction. So, you know, I've certainly done medicine on calls We often give analgesia. We often splint broken extremities, you know, if treated an SD elevation MI. Um, But most of what you're doing is a patient assessment and identifying priorities and just providing them with support and comfort while they are extracted by the rest of the team. The last call I went on, we flew over to the island to 
get an injured hiker. And when we got there, the ground team had already assessed her and packaged her nicely. And so I said hello and did a quick assessment and realized she didn't need me at all. And so we just put her in the helicopter and took her out where she needed to go. Could you um, tell us like a really interesting case you've had or perhaps your best case that that involved um, mountain medicine and search and rescue? So I knew you were going to ask that, Joe, because you warned me you were. And I think, as I mentioned, I don't have like I don't have a single best case. I guess the question is, what are the types of cases where I feel like I've made a difference by being a physician and being present? Because a lot of the time, these people just need to be rescued out of the wilderness environment back to definitive care. And I think there's a few things where, as a physician, you can really make an impact. Um, one of them is by determining is the pa- how sick the patient is and helping the team prioritize evacuation and care and you know what they need to do for the call. Um, as far as other things that we, that I feel like we can contribute or I have contributed, you know, clearing a C-spine, which seems really minor, makes a huge difference in a mountain environment. All of a sudden you have a patient that's mobile instead of having to carry them in a stretcher where you're putting your team at significant risk of injury and the patient at risk of further injury if you're on difficult terrain. So while small things like that are not exciting, they're not sexy, they make a big difference. And I think my role as a physician has been to mostly support my team and try and make their job easier. And so clearing a C-spine and getting a patient moving on their own, I think has a bigger impact than me doing some sexy medical procedure on the side of a mountain. The other thing as a physician where I think I've made an impact um, is declaring death. You know, as an emergency physician, it's something I am comfortable with is knowing when to stop um, and when what our efforts are futile, but the average layperson or um, recreational athlete in the backcountry or mountain guide doesn't know that and isn't comfortable doing that. And so when you come across a situation where it's clearly not survivable, having someone comfortable to say, this isn't going to work and this person is deceased, all of a sudden the urgency of that rescue and trying to evacuate the person and care for them goes away and everything settles down and the other people that are still there and the survivors, their safety becomes the priority. And I think it's an important thing as a physician for us to be able to do is to make that call so that those that remain, their safety becomes a priority rather than doing a risky rescue to try and save someone that's not savable. And then to support people that have been through that kind of experience as well, because it's not something your everyday person is used to. Um, so just giving them support about what's happened and why in a bit of a debrief. And I know you've actually been through this. So you're kind of, uh, you're, you know exactly what you're talking about because you've actually had to do this once before um, on a wilderness expedition you were in in Japan. Yeah, it's actually happened a couple times, unfortunately, but... Yeah. And it's happened to me as well. Um, I used to ski patrol. I ski patrolled for about 15 years on Blackcomb and that's where it's happened more. Um, for me, there was a number of cases where people basically were dead and you're right. It would put everybody at risk if you just continued on, um, with maximum effort on a dead, on a dead person that was up at Blackcomb. And I think you've had them on the ski hill, but you've also had it in other settings as well. Yes, I have. I guess as far as interesting cases, there is one that sticks out because I think it's one of the few people that actually saved their life. Um, And it was a porter on Kilimanjaro. And the organization I was working over there was actually like a for-profit organization that was a bunch of Europeans that had funded this rescue group that they were hoping to make lots of money off the truckers insurance when they all needed evacuation off the mountain for their altitude illness. But we'd managed to put into their program that they would rescue the porters and the guides and the local Tanzanian support staff for free. And they just charged the tourists a little extra to cover that cost. 
And when I was working there, we went up to get a porter that clearly had severe high altitude pulmonary edema and his O2 sats were in the 40s and he looked on the brink of death. And so we picked him up and we were able to fly him down in our helicopter back to our clinic in the town of Moshi, where he made a rapid recovery because we've now taken him down to the height of about 800 meters and provided him with supplemental oxygen, which is really all he needed. He also got nifedipine and other high altitude pulmonary edema treatments, but really the descent and the oxygen are what saved him. And he's someone that prior to this program being there would have probably either been left on the mountain or his his friends and his other the other staff would have tried to carry him out, but that would have taken over a day. And at that point, he probably wouldn't have made it because he was so sick. So that's probably one that sticks out in my mind as far as, you know, a save or making a difference. And did I really do much medicine? Well, no, not really. I just put some oxygen on him and flew him down to uh, a much lower elevation. But it was still uh, satisfying. Good job. Good save. So, um... So the North Shore Search and Rescue, I just have great admiration for them. I believe you said they're the busiest in BC, but I actually think they're the busiest in Canada. I guess it must be because of the proximity to Vancouver, just the number of people that are recreating the mountains with skiing and hiking and mountain biking. And well, there's rock climbing in, in the North Shore as well. It's just so busy. And I guess there must be like there must be so many potential activations. I suppose most people probably are activating by either not showing up or their cell phone. And then can you, can you walk me through what it's like? What, like what's an, what's an activation like and who are the members of the search and rescue team that will be activated? And when do they, when do you get plugged in? When does a physician go? Sure. Well, just uh, like a couple comments on us being busy it's definitely a population-based thing. We have this, you know, major population density in the lower mainland beside these mountains that everyone can see from downtown Vancouver. And there's an interesting thing about the North Shore Mountains in that they, at the tops, are often quite rounded and friendly. And then as you go down them, they get steeper and steeper and steeper and turn into horribly steep cliffs and gullies. And so if you stand on the top of a mountain and you can see Vancouver and maybe even see your house, the path of least resistance, if you're lost or it's getting late and it's going to get dark, to people is always to try and go down. Um, but in the North Shore Mountains, because of their unique geography, that's like the worst thing you can do. And the more you go down, the worse the terrain gets, the more technical and steep it gets, and the more your risk of injury. And often, especially if you go off the backsides, you will lose all cell service as well. So I think the population density combined with the proximity of the mountains and their unique geography really just sets us up to be very busy. As far as how we get activated, uh, most of the time these days, it's a cell phone call because a lot of the North Shore mountains do have cell service, at least limited cell service. And often you can at least get a text message out. So most of the activations are for our cell calls for an injury or I'm lost. Um, we do still get lots of calls and we've had a couple in the last couple of weeks of people that just fail to come home. And so they have a last known point or the friend or family member knew they were going hiking in an area and they just don't come back. And so we get activated to search for them. I think search and rescue is a mixed bag of incredibly dedicated volunteers. None of you guys are paid as far as I know, which is different than perhaps other models in the world. For example, in Chamonix, they have um, paid um, search and rescue um, physicians, paramedics, etc. cetera. Um, so you guys just are doing this because it's great. And I know there is some funding, but you're mostly just volunteers. And I, th I, I think we should give kudos to you guys. I mean, who who are you guys? Like who who is the who is North Shore Search and Rescue? Well, it's definitely a mixed bag. There's obviously people that are interested in the medical component of it. So there's some paramedics and nurses um, and ski patrollers on the team. That but there's and then an, actually a number of firefighters as well. But there's a lot of just everyday people. You know, 
tech people or accountants that like to recreate in the mountains and wanted to help out and make a difference. And you're right, we are all volunteers. So when that call comes in, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Um, your pager goes off. It's now it's a cell phone. And the question is, you know, can you drop everything and go? And whether that's work or your family or your dinner party um, or your vacation or your mountain bike ride, these people are stopping doing what they're doing and going out to help out on these rescue calls. And no one's getting paid uh, to do so. So I just wanted to emphasize that last point you made is that these are all volunteers and nobody's getting paid to do so. And that just makes it more amazing. Like, because I still believe that search and rescue North Shore is putting, they're putting your life somewhat on the line. Like if you're CKS, if you're going in on a helicopter on a long line, I mean, that is not without risk, especially if there's trees, especially if there's snow on the ground and there's backwash, et cetera, there, there is risk. So, so good on you guys for doing that. So when would a physician get activated then? Yeah, just one comment on your risk there, Joe. I think what people don't realize is that it's all volunteers and we get these calls and we drop everything and we go on this rescue call to help you out when you're in trouble in the North Shore Mountains. But because of the risk associated with it, the amount of training that goes in behind the scenes is is incredible. Because in order for us to take that helicopter with that pilot and put us on a long line and fly us in through the tree canopy to lower someone down to pick them up and to rescue them, that's hours and hours of training um, to be able to do that safely and to mitigate the associated risk with it. And so while everyone sees us dropping everything and going on a call, that's like the small fraction of the time that these team members, these volunteer team members are putting in to keep their skills current so that we can safely provide these technical rescue services. That's true. And people should know that NSR does weekly training sessions every Tuesday and, you know, members are expected to attend those regularly and they range from the exciting stuff like how to hang underneath a helicopter, but also how to use a compass, how to stay warm, just basic stuff like that. But the training is extensive. And same for every team in the province, right? This isn't unique to North Shore Rescue. Some teams have a lot of water and they need to do extensive training for swift water rescue. Um, the Squamish team has a lot of rescues on the rocks on the Squamish Chief and has to spend, I'm sure, hours and hours developing and perfecting their rope rescue skills. So each team has their own specific skills that they have to really hone to be able to respond in their area for their rescues. So, Carolyn, I know you work at the Royal Columbian, which is in, you know, 45-minute drive or so, but you actually live here on the North Shore. You're just one of my next-door neighbors, and so I'm wondering if you're able to come around to doing locums at Lionsgate. So I just have one of our standard locum questionnaires that I need to ask you just to kind of move your application along. So just five questions, so just really easy. Well, it would make my commute easier, Eric. I could then ride my bike easily to work. All right. Well, let's see how this goes. Number one, Tammy flu. Yes or no? No. You are at a fundraiser for rescue dogs, and the bar is serving Negronis and margaritas. Which do you choose? Does the margarita have mezcal or tequila? Mezcal. Then I want the margarita. All right. Joe's indicating to me that the correct answer is both of those drinks, but that's fine. Number three, prevention of acute mountain sickness acetazolamide or dexamethasone? Acetazolamide. All right. You did pass your diploma, right, Eric? I did, but I just seem to recall footage of when you see people who have topped out on Everest, the people who are staggering about looking terrible are the ones on acetazolamide, and the ones that are kind of acting all giddy and high are the ones on dexamethasone. Yeah, I guess the question is who made it down safely? True, true. Number four, Rock climbing in the Okanagan and drinking Naramata wines or heli skiing near Blue River with no clients? Oh, I'm going to have to go with the heli skiing because I am a skiing is my first love. All right. And last question. What is the name given to acute colonic pseudo obstruction? <laughs> 
Yeah, I'd love to come up with some random answer for you, Eric, because I hear Lionsgate's actually full and I can't get a locum job anyways. But I think it's Ogilvy syndrome. Correct. So I think you're well-suited for Lionsgate. Perfect. So I'll tell you what, I'll move that application along and it'll be fine. So for most of our calls and the average, you know, lost person or um, didn't return home as expected, um, our one of our physician group or what we call our AMP program um, doesn't get activated. So our, our general rescue calls, the, um, the regular members go out and handle most of those independently of our physician group. Um, and we don't, uh, we don't actually get involved in them unless they need more resources or we're around or we want to get out and um, be involved with the team, which is always fun. But we have some designated criteria for when we activate one of our ANPs, which currently is nine physicians and an emergency nurse. Most of the physicians are emergency physicians. Um, one is an anesthetist. And so if, the pa- if we get a call and the patient from history or information on site or from mechanism seems like they might be seriously injured or have a ongoing medical problem, then our AMP program is activated and a separate page goes out for us and we call in to our search manager to get whatever details we can. And like anything in pre-hospital medicine, often the details are few and far between. And one of us gets activated to go on the call with the team. And so we go to essentially provide medical care and are integrated into the rest of the team that then takes care of us and helps get us there and back and um, and helps with planning of the the more complex areas of the of the call, such as extrication methods and stuff and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, if the patient is felt to be seriously injured or have a medical problem, we'll activate one of our advanced medical practitioner team. And if it sounds really bad, we'll activate two of us, and then we will be integrated into the rescue response um, to provide medical care for the subject so that we can offload that aspect of their care from the rest of the team, as well as obviously provide a higher level of care than basic first aid. So do you think that people should enjoy type two fun to be a good outdoor doctor? And perhaps you need to tell people what we mean by type one and type two fun. I think most people know, but what do you think? Obviously. So I don't think you have to enjoy type two fun. I think you need to be able to bear type two type activities without whining. Um, You certainly need to be able to take care of yourself and, you know, manage your own discomforts as you're undergoing your type two adventures um, without becoming more of a burden on your, your response team, whether that's, you know, your ski patrollers or your search and rescue members. Um, The last thing you want as a doctor is to be, um, you know, a liability out there. So you have to be able to suffer in silence. I think some of my best adventures with you, Joe, have been exercises in type two fun. Well, type one fun is just your plain old fun. Like you go for a really fun mountain bike with your friends after work, and then you have beers in the yard or out on your patio. Type two fun is where you have to suffer a bit and you're probably uncomfortable and tired. And at some point when you're out there, you think, why on earth am I doing this? Um, this is terrible and I hate it. But then when you get home, you're like, well, actually, that was pretty fun. Search and rescue has changed, I think, over the last 15 years or so. Can you mention a few changes in the North Shore Search and Rescue as far as like... Um, I guess I'm getting at things like um, increased use of helicopters, um, different equipment, um, different protocols with respect to certain things like hypothermia. Can you make a couple of comments on those things? Yeah, sure. Well, anyone that watched the documentary, which I thought was very well done myself, saw some of the history of North Shore Rescue and how they used to have to just hike out into the mountains and try and find people with little information and none of the fancy gear we have now. Um, And they certainly didn't have a helicopter whenever they wanted one. And then if you fast forward to today, we have extensive 
abilities. We have the ability to longline people from a helicopter. We now have a new machine in our and the ability to do a hoist rescue where you can actually pick the person up off the ground, pull them up into the helicopter and then fly away. Because the nor traditional long line, you pick them up and you have to stay on the long line and until you get dropped off somewhere else and you never actually go in the helicopter. And as you can imagine, trying to provide medical care at the end of a big long line dangling from a helicopter as you fly around is less than ideal. So now we can actually hoist up and put them in the helicopter. We also now have night vision capabilities so we can fly at night, um, which you know, most of the people that don't come home are lost. And a lot of our extensive searches always go into nighttime operations. So that's a huge asset. So yeah, we have lots of fun new toys now, um, all of with their own risks associated with them and requirements for extensive training. Um, but it's certainly not what it used to be. And even things like cell phones, you know, every, now that everyone has a cell phone and even if they don't phone us, we can have them their cell phone ping we can get a general like location often rather than having to start with a wider net. We can narrow the search area pretty rapidly thanks to that. And same with things like satellite devices like spots and inreaches. Um, in fact, we have a program where when one of our search and rescue managers texts a subject that's lost and they text them back, it will give us their GPS location on our team map, uh, which it greatly simplifies many searches. So while we're significantly busier than we used to be, um, the resources we have at our disposal are also more extensive. As far as medical stuff goes, um, we now have 10 advanced medical practitioners on a team that when I started was me and a couple paramedics. We have we can do point of care ultrasound with a handheld ultrasound in the field. You know, we have a mechanical CPR device and fancy monitors if we have a critically ill patient that we can use in the field so it's the the capabilities have changed dramatically over the years are you guys using drones at all uh they have started to use drones i haven't really been involved in that um but they have been used on a couple of calls so far um, and there is a program in place to you know identify their uses and their um, benefits to the team for search and rescue how about um helmet cams uh, no, we've had some helmet cams for the documentary. So, you know, we've had GoPros on our helmets, but that was just for filming purposes for the documentary that was recently done. I think it's something that we can put a link to in the show notes because it's free. It's on the Knowledge Network. There were five episodes, and I think there may be some more coming up depending on what's in the works. But it gave a good broad overview of what NSR is, the history of, and what happens on calls and yeah, it was, as Carolyn said, it was very well done. Beautiful production. What are some ways that we can circle around to for doctors who want to get involved and trained in providing wilderness medicine? I know we've talked a little bit about through NSR, but also the program you spearheaded the, through the Canadian Society of Mountain Medicine. What are some things if, say, new grads or even people that are still in practice want to do to get involved? What are your suggestions for people to get started? That's perfect, Eric, because I was thinking we really needed to touch on that. Um, so obviously, search and rescue is one avenue to get involved in wilderness and mountain medicine. But, um, you know, it requires a lot of time and energy for sure. And it's pretty important for you to put that time and energy into it for you to be an actual asset to your local search and rescue team. So I certainly encourage people to explore that opportunity. Um, but there are other things you can do as well if that's not really your thing. Um, ski patrolling is super rewarding. It's probably one of the few times in wilderness and mountain medicine, at least on Whistler Blackcomb, where you consistently get to practice your skills. Because if you think about it, if you know there aren't that many calls a year or you're you you know, the wilderness mountain medicine, the sick patients and really injured patients, luckily don't happen all that often. But if you go to Whistler Blackcomb on a Saturday, you're almost guaranteed to get some sort of good extremity fracture to practice splinting and to perfect your analgesia techniques for. So I definitely recommend getting involved with local ski patrols. And I think many of the mountains across the province um, have some sort of like dock on the hill program or would be super keen to have a physician involved in helping train their members. 
So that would be one avenue as well. Um, you know, simple things like providing medical care to outdoor events. There's more and more ultra races and adventure type races happening across the province. And those have like their unique challenges. They often have a very limited budget and limited equipment. And you have athletes going off quite far um, from help or from an easy extraction point um, that can get themselves into trouble. So that can be pretty fun and challenging. Um, and if nothing else, you get to, you know, enjoy encouraging these amazing athletes along. You know, as far as um, other more expedition type stuff, there are opportunities to volunteer overseas, both with uh, climbing expeditions in the Himalayas and other areas, as well as some charity organizations. Like I was lucky enough to go to Nepal with the Himalaya Rescue Association. And there's other there's other organizations that do similar things. So something like that can be a really rewarding kind of travel volunteer experience to get involved in. And I guess for, you know, all of these things, the question is, well, where do you start and where do you get the skills you require? Because as I mentioned, I don't think you can take your average physician used to working in a very supported hospital environment and transport them into a wilderness austere environment and expect them to be able to perform and to identify priorities in the same way that someone that actually has some experience can do. And it's probably, you know, the bigger center with the more acute care and trauma where we think, you know, well, I work at this big fancy trauma center and I see all this stuff all the time. We're probably the worst people because we're really used to having a lot of support. Um, whereas someone that works in a small site rurally might be more used to having to go it alone. But as far as getting the skills, um, you know, I'll put a plug in for our Canadian Society of Mountain Medicine Diploma in Mountain Medicine program. It's, I think it's a great course. I took the European version and then have helped develop the one here in Canada and I'm still involved in organizing and teaching it. The biggest thing you get out of it is you spend two eight day periods like living, breathing, doing, practicing, and collaborating on wilderness and mountain medicine. And both through like lectures and small group sessions and simulation-based, case-based learning. And so it's not so much about the content that we teach, but getting together with a bunch of like-minded colleagues and spending this time puzzling out the best way to do things in an austere wilderness environment. And so you come away from that with some tools on just how to think about and problem solve in that environment, as well as some, you know, knowledge about the next, the gear you want to buy to put in your first aid kit and the evidence-based clinical practice guidelines for hypothermia. But uh, it's more than that, I think, that you get out of it. So all you emergency medicine people that are listening, just get out there, get involved. Ski patrol, outdoor event care, looking into overseas expeditions. And we will definitely include a link to the CSMM, the Canadian Society of Mountain Medicine, because those 16 days of hanging out in the mountains with guides and other experienced colleagues, that was some of the best CME I've ever had. Time to wrap it up and call it a day. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to post your comments and feedback on the BC Emergency Medicine Network website, bcemn.ca, and take a moment to check out the Clinical Resources tab with its clinical summaries and procedural videos, and visit the lounge to join in on member discussions, open up blogs, and access the End of Shift podcast library. Until then, keep your differential wide and go play outside.